2: Welcome to the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you're listening to The Word to Stand On For Life, a radio program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your questions about the Bible, questions about something you might be dealing with in your life, whatever it is we want to help, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. That's 3409585. You can also call us toll free at 877630KSLR numerically that's six three zero five seven five seven. you can email a question to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can send them in via the free Calvary Chapel mobile app if you're driving in your car the safest way to call is to use the KSLR free mobile app and just hit the call now button and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer that's 340 I can't believe how fast this day has gone And um, when when my producer here came in and said, it's time to start, I thought, wait a minute, we just got here, it seems like. It's been a really busy day, so this is a nice diversion. Nothing going on because it's Tuesday, so let me get right to some questions that have been sent in. Our first one comes from our email inbox from Scott, and Scott says, we must be in the last days. With the way our society's morals are and the way the world thinks about the roles of God and men, I think the passage in Proverbs 29.2 may not really apply today. When the righteous thrive, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, the people groan. Scott says, It seems that the society and the world morals point in the other direction. I also think this point also applies to Proverbs 24, 24 and 25. I'll read that now. Whoever says to the guilty, you are innocent, will be cursed by the peoples and denounced by the nations. It seems that the minority denounces, not the majority. Verse 25 is hard to stomach because it seems to be reverse of today's justice system, but it will go well with those who convict the guilty, and rich blessing will come to them. Scott, we have been in the last days, you know, obviously since the ascension of Jesus Um, uh, And we have to be careful against uh, last day hysteria. Now, I am, as you've been listening to this program, uh, I'm one who really expects that the rapture could happen at any moment. Uh, I'm looking for the return of Jesus. I'm actually eager for that very moment. At the same time, our job as Christians is to occupy. And God has prepared every one of us to live in this very time wherever we are. Acts chapter 17, my paraphrase says that God has placed each and every one of us in the exact place at the exact time we need to be in order to be able to find God and to find God's purpose for our lives. So we need to understand that we're here on a mission. And while our goal of this mission is to, to is the return of Jesus, and we're, we're anxious for that, the world around us, instead of being a source of, of confusion, instead of perplexing us, we need to be encouraged that this is perhaps the ripest mission field that we've ever experienced. Those of us in my age group and below, by far, the ripest mission field ever, because everybody seems to be lost. And yeah, we're in the last days. Paul describes them perfectly. Listen to this, Scott. He says in Second Timothy chapter 3, now remember, Second Timothy is Paul's final correspondence. It's the most personal of all of his letters. And now he's preparing Timothy. It's become clear, become clear to him that he's going to die. And Paul thought he would see the return of Jesus before his physical death. When we who are still alive will be caught up in the air to be with him, he said. And now as it dawns on him that he's going to die, somehow the Lord supernaturally has let him know that his time is up. And so he says to Timothy, Timothy, mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. Now listen to this description. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful and holy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And then he tells Timothy, have nothing to do with people who act like that. Now, obviously, he didn't mean that you're not to share Jesus with them, because that's the only answer to the hopelessness of their condition. But in that one passage, Paul has almost perfectly described the time that we live in. A time when evil is exposed to our children at an age so early, the writer of Proverbs Solomon, he writes in the Song of Solomon that we're not to awaken desire before it's time. Our children are walking around with little computers in their hands. Again, I'm going to say this, I, I, I I'll never understand why we parents allow our children to have a device in our children's hands that's going to be used by the enemy to destroy them. And you may think your kids are above it. They're not. They're looking at things and hiding the things they're looking at better than you can possibly imagine. They're sharing pictures of themselves. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. We live in this time that Paul describes. So, Scott, you're right. We are in the last days. And the clarion call for those of us who are believers is to share Jesus with as many of these lost people as ever. We're here for a purpose, and that purpose is to give an answer to those who are lost. We who are believers need to stop focusing on society's morals. We can't expect unbelievers to have good morals. We can't expect them to be governed by godly principles. It's impossible our last three studies in Romans chapter 7 here at Calvary Chapel. You can't understand the things of the Spirit because they're spiritually discerned unless you have the Spirit of God. And because the unbelieving world doesn't, it's given over to itself and over and over and over, Scott. Things we're told are going to get worse and worse. Things aren't going to get better. And we live in this time where we're either going to cave in and conform to the pressures around us or we're going to take a stand for Jesus and be used for his glory. And we who are believers have to make that choice. We have to reinforce that choice every day because for the first time in America, it's really going to be hard to be a Christian. We have to stand strong. Isaiah chapter 5, Scott, let me recommend that to you for your reading. Isaiah promises that in Israel there will be a time, and it's also true in the time that we live in, where good is called evil and evil is called good. A time where the people draw their sin with cords of deceit behind them through the public square. I always think of a gay pride parade when I read that passage. We in America have lost the ability to blush. We no longer have a sense of shame. And the only answer, Scott, is the Holy Spirit. And the only way you get the Holy Spirit is by believing in Jesus. So that needs to be the message that we have. Scott, thank you for your questions. I appreciate them very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Thomas from our mobile app. Uh, Pastor On God created all of his angels with a hierarchy. However, he did not do that when he created man. Is this another indicator of God creating us in his image? Or I'm reading too much into it. Thomas, I think you may be reading a little bit too much into it. Um, Remember, God only made mankind. uh, Two people, Adam and Eve with his own finger. The rest of us were born into this fallen world, and we were created by the process God created, procreation, uh, and we born into a fallen world, and 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 you can look around, and there is a hierarchy. Now, it's not a hierarchy from heaven's perspective, but certainly here, we have men who are born, who are smarter than others. I really like intelligent people, and and my only stumbling block is why are they so much smarter than me? Um, God creates some people with wonderful gifts and abilities. Uh, we we watch Paul and I watch shows on TV, and so we just think, wow, people can do stuff. We can't do any of those things. Uh, In the Christian world, uh, Jesus tells parables about different levels of abilities or talents or gifts given by God. Some with limited ability are given uh, one talent, some five, some ten. And we're to put whatever those talents are to work, and the the rewards are going to be the same for faithfulness, whether you have one, five, or ten. But again, there's a, a natural hierarchy. In heaven... God created his angels with different levels of power and authority, so very much the same way. So I don't think that this is an indication, Thomas, of God creating us in his image at all. I just think that's the result of a fallen world, and, and it's always going to be that way. One thing I will say is this, and I want everybody to, to always remember this, um, when, when we talk about, we're all creating God's image, so we all need to be, we need to love everybody unconditionally. Um, Being created in God's image means two things. One, it means that we're created with the capacity to choose. As God chose us, we choose him. We have been given a free will to make choices. The second way, and this is even more, uh, uh, I think, to the point, by being created in the image of God, it doesn't mean we look like him. It means that we are all, once we are born, eternal beings. We're going to live somewhere forever, We have to choose in this life where that forever is going to be. So we're created eternally. That's why we're not just going to perish when we die. We're just going to not cease to be. We're alive. Our spirits are alive and they're going to live forever just as God has always been. So we make a choice where we're going to live forever. And Thomas, you and most of the people listening to this radio program have chosen to live forever with Jesus. Praise the Lord for that. But that's what it really means to be made in the image of God. Thank you very, very much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Let me go to Danny's question. He says, was Balaam a prophet of God? No, he was a prophet and God spoke to him. But he was a pagan, he was an unbeliever, he is condemned uh, and and judged by God very harshly as he comes to the end of his life. Jesus uh, himself condemns Balaam, uh, and of course, if he was a prophet of God, uh, he could not, would not have been condemned. So no, he was a a pagan prophet. Danny, if you're interested, you can go to calvaryessay.com and listen to the studies in the book of Numbers that I did on Balaam in those chapters. Uh, and I go into some detail about this because there has been confusion over the years about uh, while well, he was spoke to God and God spoke through him, uh, or remember in the story that he also spoke through his donkey. So he was not a prophet of God. He was a pagan uh, who is bent on destroying the people of God, and he was bent on destroying the people of God for financial gain. The way of Balaam. Here is a question from Randy. I laughed Randy when I got this question today. Randy says, "What is a Christian response to a man's midlife crisis?" I don't know if there's really a Christian response, Randy, but I was laughing because uh, Paula let me know a long time ago that she wasn't going to permit me to that midlife crisis. So, for me it was just a non-sequitur. Um but but I think what we have to do as Christians is is to respond uh biblically to to all these situations, you know uh we have no right to a midlife crisis, why because we're dead people walking around uh we're bought and paid for we're not our own. we were bought with the price Paul writes to the Corinthians, and if we understand that, then we realize that every single day of our lives has to be governed by God, and a midlife crisis, albeit a confusing, painful crisis for many uh is is far from god's plan for our lives so Uh, We need to have that focus, Randy, that, that sort of compass point. Jesus, I'm going to follow you all the days of my life. I'm going to do it regardless of how I feel. I'm going to do it regardless of what's going on in my life. And in fact, Randy, the more that's going on and the more difficult things are, the more we need to hone in on following Jesus with all of our heart. So I think the Christian response is what Jesus said when he told his disciples that to be my disciple... You have to pick up your cross every day, deny yourself. And giving into a midlife crisis is affirming yourself. You have to deny yourself and follow him. So a Christian response to a man's midlife crisis is don't go there. Don't go there. Randy, I hope that helps. Thank you very much. Let's go to Harold calling on line one. Harold, thanks for calling and kicking us off. You're on the air.
3: Sure. Thanks. Um, Yeah, Pastor Ron, I didn't have time to call yesterday because it was at the end of the show, and y'all were discussing about original sin. Someone had called about it, and there's no such thing as original sin, and um, I was wondering, is that a different type of thought compared to the the sin of uh, Abraham? I mean, the sin of Adam, Adam Adam and Eve, I'm trying to Mm say, because I thought that we had the sin of Adam, and then I know later on it starts like we don't have the sin of our parents, grandparents, or something like that, fourth generation. But anyway, I just you know I don't know why I want to know all these things, but uh, sometimes it bothers me. If, if you can yeah, answer you. or do something with that, I appreciate it.
2: Thank you, Harold. I can. Uh, yeah, the question yesterday was about generational curses, and I said there is none. Um, you know, our, our Bibles make it clear that we all stand before God on the basis of our own sin. Now, I didn't say, at least I certainly hope I didn't, that there's no such thing as original sin, because there is. Original sin was that sin which was caused by Adam or or passed on by Adam. Uh, Romans chapter 5 talks about Adam being our federal representative or a federal head. In other words, he is a representative of all mankind, even the name Adam Adam means man or mankind. And so as a result, when sin entered the world through our, our the first Adam, uh, we inherited that sin nature. That's why it was necessary for the second Adam, of course referring to Jesus, to come and provide a solution for that sin nature. But but original sin is very real. Um, um, w- when we are judged, we're not going to be judged for Adam's sin. We're going to be judged uh, on our for our own sin. But when Adam and Eve fell, we all inherited the sin nature. As evidence, very quickly, you you remember when Cain committed murder against his brother. So, and and from that time, it's been a murderous planet that we live on because man is wicked at heart. Uh, there's nothing good in our flesh in our uh, our human nature, uh, and that's why the the gift of life through Jesus Christ matters so very very much. Generational curses is something completely different. A generational curse is a false teaching, Harold, that suggests that that uh, uh, we can be cursed because of the behaviors of our ancestors, and they go down sometimes three and four generations. But that is to completely uh, pervert. The, the statements in, in, in the law and the Ten Commandments that uh, God is simply drawing a contrast between His love, which goes for a thousand generations to those who love Him, and the, the uh, curses to the third and fourth generation of those who hate Him. That's what's important. And it's not that God curses people uh, because of what their parents did or because of their grandparents. Um, it's that they just apart from christ they keep repeating the same behavior patterns so yeah there is a generational curse of sorts only in the sense that apart from christ we're all doomed to sin but we're not doomed to sin uh in christ when he comes storming into our hearts he frees us from that the old is gone and the new has come but original sin is a very important doctrine uh, of the of the historic Christian faith it is an essential uh, we have to look at, none of the Bible makes sense if there wasn't a time when sin invaded this perfect world and the consequences of sin Romans wouldn't make any sense Harold because Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that even the earth uh, groans uh, awaiting its renewal uh, awaiting for that moment when it will no longer be subjected to the curse so uh, original sin is a very, very important doctrine uh, we need to understand. I've got one other question that kind of comes uh, along the same line. Uh, let me see if I can find it here. Here it is. It's an anonymous question. And it says, uh, Pastor Ron, if sin comes from Adam, why are we still considered sinners if we have no choice but to sin? And I think that's the other side, Harold, of of where you're coming from, um, There are people who say, well, if if Adam sinned and I have no choice but to sin because of his sin, then why is it my fault or why does God hold me accountable? And here's what we need to understand, that Adam was judged for his sin. The world was subjected because of his sin. You and I are products of that world that was condemned or subjected to his sin nature. But none of us will ever stand before God none of us will ever stand before God and explain Adam's sin. We will stand before God for our own sins only. And for Anonymous, the answer to the question, we're considered sinners because we sin, but we have a choice not to. See, just as Adam had a choice in the Garden of Eden, you have a choice every single day not to sin. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to be perfect doesn't even mean you can be perfect because uh, the spirit is willing the flesh is weak however and this is important every single day we've been given as christians now we have been given the opportunity to say no to sin not true with the unbelieving world sin is going to overwhelm them they they actually embrace their sin they like to sin but we who are believers When we sin, make no mistake, we do it because we want to. We do it willfully, knowing that when we sin, we're saying yes to us and no to Jesus. And, of course, consequences follow. Now, the difference, of course, is that we who are true believers are forgiven of that sin. And we need to work hard to be more like Jesus, to be with Jesus. But we're never going to be judged for Adam's sin. So anonymous... If that's a game you're playing with yourself to justify why you're doing so, well, it's not my fault, then you need to stop. Here's what the Apostle Paul concluded. He said, when I find this law at work, when I sin, it's not me who sins, but sin living in me. Now, he's not escaping personal responsibility for sinning. He's just spent the entire seventh chapter talking about uh, how wretched he is, what a terrible sinner he is, and how he wants to be delivered from that sin. But what he's saying is, I find this battle going on. And in each one of us, there's two natures. There's the old nature of our flesh that God overwhelms when we come into his heart. But we're still human, and we still want to sin. And the truth is, sin is going to overtake us if we don't feed the Spirit, if we're not in the Word, if we're not walking with Jesus the problem is we want to sin so we try to find excuses for it which proves for the most part that we're really not Christians at all so anonymous it is true that sin comes from Adam it's true that you can't be perfect but Jesus said that we're to aim for perfection be ye perfect as your father in heaven is perfect we're to aim for perfection we do it because we love him not because we have to but because we want to those are really important things to consider so Harold I hope I answered your question anonymous I hope that satisfactorily answers your question here's a question from Dan that I can answer in the two minutes we've got we'd love your live calls for the second half of the program 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR Dan says can a believer lose their salvation Dan a believer cannot lose their salvation Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14 says, We who are born again have been given His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, as a deposit, sort of a down payment on eternity. And then he says this, guaranteeing our inheritance. Now, then if I guarantee your salvation, the guarantee is only as good as my word. But when God, who is perfect and cannot lie, guarantees your salvation. When God says, I've got you in my hands, and no one can snatch you out. When Jesus can say to his Father, I've lost none that you've given me. Why is it that we even entertain this question? Now, obviously the reason is because we see a lot of people who claim to be Christians, who are acting like unbelievers, and eventually fall completely away from the Lord. We think, oh, well, they must have lost their salvation. No, they didn't lose it. They never had it. So that's what we've got to understand. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us to prove they were never part of us. And that's John agonizing all those years later over not knowing that Judas was a traitor. Peter does likewise. So Dan, hold on to Jesus. You won't have any worries about your salvation. 30 minutes left in today's program we'd love your live calls 340-9585 you're listening to the word to send them for life i'm pastor ron arbaugh from calvary chapel in san antonio texas we'll be back in two minutes
1: back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh.
2: Welcome back to the second half of the program, 340-9585. Uh, We just got an interesting question in from Glenn from our email inbox. Remember, we'd love to have your live calls. Glenn's question is this. A friend of mine says, I am being a hypocrite Christian because in the past, like you, I've not gone to see movies with him that use the Lord's name in vain, but I have gone and seen R-rated movies that show nudity. Am I being a hypocrite? Well, Glenn, that really is only known to you and God. Um, let me let me flesh this out just a little bit because I think this is an important thing romans fourteen twenty three says anything not of faith is sin now um, i've been asked questions about movies and what kind of movies to see uh, in the past as as a christian, and i 've made my position really clear i don 't watch r rated movies, uh, not because I think anybody who does is in sin uh, it 's just something I believe that in my position as a pastor, God has asked me to sacrifice. Uh, and like all the sacrifices God asks you to make, they don't—they really turn out not to be sacrifices, because you're doing the things He wants you to do, because you know He wants you to experience the fullness of of life, uh, the abundance of your calling. And I would be really uncomfortable if I went to a movie theater and I walked out of a movie—a th- uh, movie that was rated R—and—and um, and there was a lot of sex or nudity in it. Or they took God's name in vain, and then somebody from the church said, Oh, hi, Pastor Ron, what movie did you go see? I don't want to lie to him. And for me, it's just easier. I don't want to be a stumbling block for anybody. Now, let me take the other approach with using the Lord's name in vain. It really does perplex me. Uh, I I, I have to be very honest. It perplexes me why any Christian would go to a movie where God's name is taken in vain when, when they, they, they take his name in vain uh, as a curse word, um, I, I wouldn't pay, most Christians wouldn't pay to go to a movie where they'd see their husband, their wife, or their kids spoken about badly. Well, why do we do that with our Jesus? Why, when they throw those words out needlessly, by the way, that adds nothing at all to the movies, Why don't all Christians get up and leave? Now, I understand movies. I've said this before in this program. I like movies. I like them a lot. And there are certain types of movies that I like more than others. And almost always those movies take God's name in vain. And I just can't stomach when that happens. Paul and I have gotten two-thirds of the way into movies, really wrapped up in good movies, and then they'll take God's name in vain. And we got to get up and leave. And it's not because we have to. We, we just can't bear to hear God's name taken in vain. So there, there's I think the hypocrite is the Christian who, who goes to a movie, pays their money, and then they take God's name in vain and they say nothing or do nothing. Um, that's my own opinion. Um, that's my Romans fourteen twenty three. I can't fathom that. Now, with regard to R-rated movies, and of course, nudity is a part of most all R-rated movies. Um, I would never presume to tell somebody in my church that they can't go to one of those movies. I could never tell them because the Bible doesn't say that Jesus considers that a sin. Um, We live in a world, and and, um, some people are more sensitive to those things than others. Some are stumbled by them, and some are not. So that's something, Glenn, that's between you and the Lord. Uh, Anything not of faith is sin. If God is, however, please hear this. If God is sort of pricking your heart, and He's using your friend to do it, maybe it's time, just because you love Jesus, that you made that choice. maybe it's time maybe it's God saying I have more for you than those movies and when you make that step others are going to say you're being overreactionary. they're going to say oh who do you think you are Mr. Holier than thou but remember Glenn this is between you and Jesus now I can't discern your friend's motives here um, is he saying that because you're a Christian you shouldn't go to either or that because you go to movies with nudity in it, nudity in it you ought to be okay with God's name being taken in vain so that's between you and your friend but the one thing you don't want to be is one of those Christians that other people point fingers at and say oh yeah you do these things in private now obviously Glenn and this is not for you it's for everybody else but we really have no business um, watching movies where uh, graphic sex is taking place between people who aren't married, probably graphic sex taking place even if people are married, Um, we certainly don't want to look at things that are um, borderline pornography. Uh, So what we've got to do is we've got to decide, am I all in for Jesus, or am I still holding some back for me? One of my former pastors here, who's a professor at a university here in East Texas, Um, He said it so clearly one day. He said, you know, the closer you get to Jesus, the blacker the gray areas of life become. And I've never forgotten when he said that when he was teaching one time. And why is it that we Christians try to figure out how much we can get away with and still be saved instead of trying to decide how close we can get to Jesus? these are important questions for you to deal with to struggle with, wrestle with God go to Genesis 32 and just like Jacob wrestled with Jesus, wrestle with Jesus over these issues Glenn and then when you come away convinced that you can do this or you can't do this then respond accordingly thanks for the question, it's an interesting one Calvin called and uh, responds what do you mean when you say take God's name in vain do you mean cursing um, you know the, wh- when they say GD uh, that's that's a nuclear bomb for me you know, uh, I, I'm less offended if somebody just uses Jesus as a pejorative. You know, um, but 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 if and I've been in movies where Jesus' name was taken in vain. Uh, so I mean, Calvin cursing uh, when when the the G D word is poured out there, um, it it's it's so offensive to me. It's it's so offensive. Uh, every one of you in the audience, you should see Paula's face. And now, of course, God's name is taken in vain that way, cursing. Uh, on on regular television. And when we're caught by surprise, you, you, you should see the look on Paula's face. It hurts her to her very soul. And I just feel foolish. I mean, why would I spend time or pay money in particular. So that's what I mean by God's name taken in vain. Uh, I, I don't mean just the common speech that we have. Christians shouldn't talk like that, of course. But but remember, we live in an unbelieving world that is rebelling against God. And I'm not suggesting that we be naive or that we for ourselves, but I'm talking about what we participate in ourselves. And when God's name is cursed... Uh, when when uh, that happens, it's just over the top for me, Calvin. So that's what uh, I personally mean by God's name being taken in vain. That's my particular Romans fourteen twenty three place. Here is a question from John. Uh, he says, "Would you agree with N. T. Wright's views on the atonement?" John N. T. Wright, uh, for the audience who doesn't know, is an Episcopal priest. Uh, A a very prolific author, a very, very, very bright man, Uh, and he is one of the voices that is sort of creeping in to uh, what I call the new Christianity, uh, which is uh, less relational and more liturgical, um, um, more open to um, conversing and doing things the way the world uh, and, and of course the Episcopal Church has by and large thrown the Bible away a long time ago. Uh, in direct response to your question about his views on atonement, uh, I could not disagree more. The atonement, the, the penal substitution of Jesus on the cross for your sins and mine, John, is an essential of our historic Christian faith. Um, if you don't believe that Jesus took your place, uh, Isaiah's prophecy, the the punishment that brought us peace was placed upon him, uh, all of Isaiah 53 and 55, and, and, and the idea that Jesus took the wrath of God so that we would be spared the wrath of God, uh, those are essential uh, doctrines of the historic Christian faith. And what the modernists are trying to do, and N.T. right among them, is saying, well, that's a barbaric God. God wouldn't pour out his wrath on his son. Jesus died for the sins of the world. And, and they, they hold to most of the other essentials. But uh, this whole idea of substitutionary uh, death and punishment... Uh, is, is for some reason, it brings them great distress. It, it should bring them great comfort, but it brings them great distress. So I cannot at all recommend N.T. Wright again. He's an entertaining guy, and he's really, really brilliant. Uh, he's just too far liberal on this issue of of some of the fundamentals of our faith. And and I wouldn't uh, listen to him because of that, nor uh, do I have any interest in reading his views on the atonement. I think the Bible is pretty clear on what the atonement is. So John, I hope that answers your question. Here is a question from Greg. Uh, Greg says, I go to church often and hear about politics instead of Jesus. I know that we should be politically active, but is that the purpose of church? Greg, I feel your pain. I really, really feel your pain. Uh, When we go to church, we should hear about one thing and one thing only, and that's Jesus. The Bible, the Bible, the Bible. Church is not a platform for right-wing politics or left-wing politics, for that matter. Church is not a platform uh, for voter registration drives. Church is not a platform uh, for putting prayer back in schools. Church is a place where Christians go, according to Ephesians chapter 4, to be equipped for the work of ministry. And there's no way to be equipped except by being taught the Bible. Church isn't a place to be entertained, uh, to tell funny stories. Church isn't a place to get in and out in 20 minutes. Church is a place where we are equipped to serve, where we're equipped to to leave the church that day and share Jesus with people. Church is a place where we understand the foundation of our faith, a, a place where we learn more deeply and get more interested in learning even more about Jesus. And the only way, Greg, that you can do that is to open your Bible and teach. God has given pastors and teachers to the church as his gift. I like to tell our church, whether you like me or not, I'm God's gift to you. And they laugh and they smile. I know they love me. But the idea is you need to be taught. The gift of being able to teach the Bible is a wonderful gift because truly we have the answers. And every Sunday, Greg, when people come into the church, I'm aware that there's unsaved people. I'm aware that there are people who say they're saved or think they're saved, but they're not. I'm aware that there's people who are really hurting, whether it's physically, emotionally, or spiritually. I'm aware that there's really confused, needy people. I'm also aware that there's people that are broken. And the Bible puts broken people back together. I'm also aware that they're hungry people. By that I mean spiritually hungry people who know there's got to be more in life. That describes you, I think, Greg, based on your question. Uh, uh, I don't care about Jesus. You go there because you're hungry to learn more about Him. And that is the only purpose of church. And for the life of me, I, I don't know how we've made this turn into being political activists in the church as though a party has the answers to our problems. Jesus is the answer to our problems. Jesus is the only one that can fix this broken world. And so what we have to do is go get fed um, Jesus learning more about him. So uh, I'm sorry that you go to church and, and that's what you encounter. I would suggest very strongly if that really is a pattern or is becoming a pattern in your church. And by the way, that's happening on the left as well as on the right. Um, then find another church where when you go, they open the Bible. That's all we should do. So thank you very much for the question. Let's go to Universal City Scott online too. Scott, thanks for calling. You're on the air.
3: Hey, Pastor Ron, how are you today?
2: I'm doing really well, thanks.
3: Okay, um, I just wanted to make a comment. Um, I just—I'm uh, still in Exodus. Uh, we were studying the Ten Commandments. Been a few, couple months ago, I think now, but uh, we were studying the "Take the names Lord in Vain," and I believe it was another Calvary pastor somewhere in California or someplace. I heard, but I really kind of uh, focused in on that where he said that, uh, and he used uh, when Nathan. Um, uh, confronted david about his sin and how he's given god's enemies a, a reason or, or a, a, um given them room to to blasphemy god and the emphasis was is that when we take on the name of christ our actions can take the lord's name in vain because it we're representing christ to others and when we act unChristlike, they're associating that with with his name uh, anyway, I, I just wanted to mention that, and maybe you can make some comments, and uh, I, I can hang up and listen to you on the radio.
2: God sure, pleasure, thank you, Scott. You too. Thank you. Appreciate it. Um, you know, I don't disagree with anything that you said, obviously, and, and it's one of the things we talk here uh, at Calvary Chapel a lot of, uh, about. A lot, um, where to be salt and light in the world, where to be His ambassadors, and an ambassador has no personal agenda. We're not supposed to. We're representing another cause, His cause. Um, I don't think, however, that that's the intent of Exodus chapter 20. Uh, The NIV um, uh, translates that you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, Uh, um, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Um, That's a, a pretty direct reference to how we speak now clearly. Um, we are misrepresenting God when we use coarse language. Uh, clearly, we're misrepresenting God when we live in sin, claiming to be Christians. Um, so so there, there's all kinds of other issues there, but specifically uh, in, in the law, uh, taking the Lord's name in vain, is is to misuse his name, you could do that in the marketplace in in uh, in the Jewish culture um, you know the money changers were misusing the name of God, representing him, but really stealing using his name to steal from those who were poor um, um, there's misusing the name of the Lord uh, uh, in our culture it 's not just when we hear somebody throw out the big bombs. Uh, but but you know uh, just the, the the meaningless references to his name. Uh, I, I get birthday cards from people or about parties all the time. Uh, uh, lordy, lordy, guess who's forty? Those kind of things. Or when we use Jesus's name uh, as an exclamation point, uh, or you know, just there's so many ways to misuse verbally the name of God, and that's what's in view uh, in the commandments uh and And having said that, Scott, your comment about misrepresenting God is equally valid just not particularly in the context of this passage. so thanks a lot. you are right, and uh appreciate the input three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions uh Here's an, another anonymous question um, Do you ever think that by imposing time limits on worship and then in parentheses especially? And the teaching service, you may be quenching the Holy Spirit. Now, this may be somebody who's come to our church. It sounds like it's a a question that's personal. Uh, No, I don't. The Spirit of God is a God of order. Uh, He respects uh, the people's time. Um, I can say, Anonymous, that in our 22-plus years here at Calvary Chapel, we've never started one minute late. Um, If I was to be late, you know, there used to be a saying around Calvary Chapels, uh, oh, we're on Calvary time. Uh, which means they were being starting services five minutes late, 10 minutes late. Uh, I think that would be so disrespectful to the people who come from my perspective. I want to respect their time. I'm grateful that they're here. And we even have a countdown on our, our screen that is in front of the church uh, that counts down to the beginning of service. And when that countdown says zero, my worship leader says, let's all stand up and worship God. So, um, uh, no, we're not imposing uh, or we're not quenching the Spirit by imposing time limits on worship. We've got children's ministry. Um, we've got to get people in and out for the, the multiple services, the three services we have on Sunday. Uh, so uh, even on, on Wednesday nights and Friday nights, um, people have to go home, our child care people uh, who, are, who are teaching the kids. Uh, they need to know that parents are going to be able at 8.30 to come and get their kids. So so I think order is very, very important. Um, I think that maybe the genesis of this question is uh, sometimes people say things like, well, you know, if the Holy Spirit's really moving, uh, I've been in churches where the worship team will say, you know, the Spirit's moving. We we just can't stop. The Spirit's pushing us, and people get excited because they're all emotional. That's not the Holy Spirit. And regarding the teaching uh, anonymous, um, if I've got forty or forty five minutes and Sunday for me, it's forty minutes and on on Wednesdays and Fridays it's forty five minutes uh, if if I go over typically it's it's not the Holy Spirit uh, that I'm um, generating it's 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 just me. I, I can effectively under the power of the spirit, uh, teach the word. Within time limits. Now, my church knows me really, really well, of course, and so uh, we, we don't hold hard and fast rules to that on Wednesdays and especially on Friday nights. But on Sunday, we really do. Um, time limits are there, and there's no way we're quenching the Spirit uh, because our focus is on worship and teaching the Word, and that's Spirit-led. So uh, I, I hope that answers your question, and I hope that we haven't offended you uh, when you were here by by cutting something short. We had an afterglow, uh, not this past Friday, but the, the Friday before. And an afterglow is a time here at Calvary Chapel. We finish a book on Friday before we start a new book. We have an afterglow. It's a time where the gifts of the Spirit um, can flow in the body uh, decently and in order. It's a beautiful, beautiful, sweet time. This particular afterglow I mentioned earlier on the program uh, last week that it was, for me, the most profound um, afterglow we've ever had here. Um, and at the end, you know, there was 10, 11 hands still up waiting to, to be recognized. And and we had to cut it off. And we could have gone for another hour, hour and a half easily on that day. Um, but remember, our God is a God of order. There's, there needs to be order in worship. And um, God's got an hour and a half um, he can say everything that he wants to say to us. The problem is in the afterglow service people are a little shy and things get started a little bit slow. And at the end, everybody wants to share. And um, um, maybe we'll just be a little bit better at starting right at the beginning with people instead of waiting. So and honestly, I hope that effectively answers your question. Um, oops, my time's going flying on this half of the program. Uh, Jason wants to know, uh, Pastor, on what is the one book in your life? What is the one book in your life that has had the most impact? Jason, it's not the best book, um, but you asked for just one. The one book in my life that's had the most impact is uh, "The Cost of Discipleship" by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, and it was just one of those God moments where. Uh, it showed up in my life at exactly the right time. I was uh, a brand-new Christian, and I was really confused because what I was being told Jesus wanted for me and for Paula uh, didn't seem to make a lot of sense. He wanted me to be rich. He wanted me to be healthy and happy. And, and I, I just wasn't experiencing that reading through the Gospel accounts, reading uh, in the Bible. And uh, one day, just sort of sovereignly, it was like God left it on a desk. I was studying at a a School of Theology library in Claremont, California, and there was this book, The Cost of Discipleship, by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And I read it. I read it in one setting. Uh, After 10, 11 hours of, of spending time with it, I'd filled up an entire legal pad with notes. I went home that evening and told Paula sit down, we've got to talk, we have a whole lot of things to unlearn and relearn. And it was that book that God used really to open my eyes to what the true gospel was. The call to sacrificial living, uh, the call to honoring God during suffering, um, just the the real gospel, the real story about the Bible and the cost of discipleship, which really is a commentary, a Bonhoeffer commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. But it was spectacular and it arrived at just the right time in my life and literally in one day changed my entire life. So that was a lot of impact and I don't think I've ever been impacted by a book as much as that. Now there's one that's close, Jason, and it's, uh, it was a book that was preparing me for my calling as a pastor and it was a book by F.F. F. Bruce called uh, The Heart of the Apostle Set Free and it was a book about the life of the Apostle Paul. And um, uh, Paul and I have had a love affair going on for for all of these years since. Uh, and that book is, is very close to cost of discipleship. But in terms of sheer change of life impact, nothing has been as vital as, uh, as the cost of, of uh, discipleship. So I recommend it highly, um, but I recommend all the other things. Now, we get calls from time to time, and I don't have time for any more questions. We're inside one minute, so uh, if you go to calvarysa.com, we have a list of of um, recommended reading. Uh, it is a modest list. I certainly didn't spend a bunch of time to go through everything that's impacted my life. But on, on that website, we've got uh, a list of things that, when you get started, uh, you will you will be blessed. You will be blessed, and they will enrich your lives immeasurably. Hey, great program today. Thank you for your calls. Thank you for your questions. You've been listening to the Word to Stand On for Life. I am Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Lord willing, we'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock to take your phone calls and answer your questions. God bless. See you then.
1: Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh.